we always say, you know, uh, prioritisation delay. It's not, it's not weeks or months. It's actually hours and days. Hello and welcome to the Data IQ podcast, brought to you in partnership with Royal Mail. If we get it wrong, then the generations after us won't have a chance. A chance. I'm David Reed, bringing you interviews and insights from the data and analytics industry. In this edition, we hear from two members of the DataIQ 100 Top 10. Coming up, Unilever's Andy Hill, our number eight, talks about the global effect data is having for the company. In a moment, our number one, Ming Tang, talks about the vital work she is leading for NHS England. And also in this edition, I talk to Paul Davidson at Royal Mail about brand new research findings that uncover some revealing trends around data investments. So first, Ming Tang is the Managing Director of Data and Analytics for NHS England. I spoke to her about the role data is playing in our healthcare system, especially in the middle of a global pandemic. So Ming, welcome to the DataIQ 100 for the first time this year in 2021. You're in the top 10, and in fact, I'm delighted to say that we've chosen you to be our number one this year. Wow, <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you very much. That's, that's a real accolade. I didn't realise that. And quite unexpected, actually. <laughs> well, in a year really like no other, looking at the work that you've been doing, it was pretty much a given that we had to recognise that work. But I wonder if you could just give a little sense of what it is that you do in your role to our audience who are listening today. So I'm the um, National Director for Data and Analytics in NHS England and Improvement. Um, my role is very much one of making sure we make the most of um, the data and the analysis that we, we can provide. And very much in, during this year, because we've had such a hard year with COVID, it was really about making sure that we created a community, brought together all the data sources and make that data available so that we could um, both accelerate our response, use data and information in, in its full potential to drive a, a better response to the pandemic, but also create a community because there are lots of analysts and data scientists out there in the NHS and wider partners um, who wanted to support in, in, you know, in the hour of need for the country. So that's been really um, encouraging. And what we did as a team provided the infrastructure and the coordination and some of the innovation, but very much allowed the analysts to share what analysis they were doing, what data they needed, how we could support, how they could learn from each other. And that was the biggest thing for us, actually doing things once, sharing the analysis and learning so that we both innovated quicker, um, but actually everybody got access to the information in the right place. Nationally, what we did was created a COVID-19 data store where we could actually see what that data was link it and make it available for research for operational usages and actually just to get a handle on um, you know the infection where the infection was happening how we could then cr create a single source of truth and a view 
what the analysis should be. Um, on top of that, we then created a number of products. We created a number of what we called operational dashboards, both in um, our data platform using things like Tableau, um, the Foundry um, platform from Palantir, and worked with lots of external parties. So we should recognize that you know, people like Microsoft, Amazon, um, faculty, lots of different companies actually came together and provided their resources for free at the beginning of the pandemic. And then what we did is once we got... Um, those products more matured we then actually extended that with extended nhs families as well so that that's been the mode of operation that i'm really proud of an extraordinary scale obviously uh, in terms of the data source the resourcing required but also the time scale that that had to be done within it's easy to forget now it seems a long time ago but this had to be a very rapid response didn't it yeah so what it showed us is what we could do if we a, lose the organisation boundaries. <laughs> B, really focused on the, the focus, the efforts on doing the right thing and then used our collective um, energy and expertise externally with, within the NHS and external parties with the arms length bodies, but also with private sector. Bringing that together gave us a huge engine so we could turn things around really quickly. So we always, I'm working on the vaccination programme now, we always say, you know, a, a prioritisation delay, it's not, it's not weeks or months, it's actually hours and days. So we're prioritising things each day for what we do in the following day um, for new, you know, minimum viable products, etc. So we've learnt a lot around product development, analysis cycles, and actually just sharing. It's absolutely extraordinary discovering those ways of working and what can be done when the will is there and the resourcing is, is yeah. made available. You mentioned there about community of analysts, and, and I think you are part of um, a really fascinating initiative called uh, Hashtag Future NHS. Yeah, so Future NHS has been a collaboration tool that we've had in the NHS for probably the last three or four years. And it's been really valuable for things like setting up ICSs and STPs. Um, so that's you know collaborative across local health systems for learning and sharing. What we did was really use that platform to bring together different groups of analysts. And the guys, you know, my team, I'm so proud of them because they've basically just gone ahead and been really innovative around, you know, TED Talks, podcasts, all sorts of competitions and sharing of code analysis and lots of learning, sub subgroups of learning. So we're over, I think it's, the numbers are like 14,000 analysts now across the NHS and private sector. So within that um, community, we also brought in um, what they called Analyst X and the market exchange. So bringing in different exchange of ideas. So if people have got a problem they want to solve, there's a, there's a coordination of who are the analysts who have time to actually support that need or collaborate with pieces of work they're already doing so that they can enrich the learning and actually the, the analysis. And then obviously our community partners, industry partners are also there providing expertise um, in terms of their products or actually um, knowledge and also expertise, subject matter experts they're bringing to the party as well. So very collaborative environment and great learning that we want to take forward well, it's a model which I think many, many people in our community, in the audience today, um, can definitely learn from. They're, they're probably uh, 
progressing similar projects in their own right. But it's fantastic to hear directly from you about all of that work. It's so important. And of course, we all personally are benefiting from these efforts. So Ming, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you very much. And congratulations being our number one for 2021. Thank you very much, Great to hear that news. Thank you. Now, Unilever is a global manufacturer whose brands sit on all of our shelves. As Global Vice President of Information and Analytics, Andy Hill gets to deal with data covering everything from consumer behavior through to the impact of the company's supply chain on the environment. In this interview, he told me about his vision for data and how it can benefit all of us. Firstly, Andy, congratulations on making it into the top 10 in this year's DataIQ 100. Can you give our listeners an insight into your role and what you're responsible for? Uh, yeah, thanks, David. My, my role, first of all, I, I'm, I'm based in London. I, I work for Unilever um, and I'm responsible for the global data information and analytics agenda uh, across the whole enterprise. Um, I have about 300, a team of about 300 people, so data analysts, uh, data experts, data scientists, and technical uh, uh, people who really are a part of an extended team helping to really drive the data agenda for, for, uh, for Unilever. We're truly global. So uh, I have teams based in, uh, in China, in, uh, in different countries in Southeast Asia. On the one side, we've got teams in Europe and, and across uh, Asia and Africa, and then also teams in North and, North and South America. So um, tr- truly global, but actually, you know, the exciting thing about Unilever is each one of those countries is, 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 is very different and you get to actually deliver data and analytics solutions across 190 countries. That's how many countries we operate in. So you get to learn so much about, you know, consumers, customers, how we operate, our employees, everything really. It's, it's fascinating. So Andy, what sort of information assets do you have to work with? So we work across the whole spectrum of data assets. So first party, second party, third party data, structured and unstructured data. When you think of a company like Unilever, you think of a CPG company and you think, well, CPG company doesn't have that much access to their own consumer data directly because the majority of sales you know, are made through through retailers around the world. However, nothing can be further from the truth. And you know, I've been here for three and a half years, and it it's really surprising the breadth of data that we have and that we're building. So we look at data for you know every ingredient of every product uh, of every brand that we that we make and distribute, and uh, the the. You know, the way in which we distribute the logistics of that all the way through to all of the different customers. So that's customers would be like retailers around the world and and our sales forces going into them. So you, you cover the whole spectrum of data. And then you're also working in really exciting new data fields as well. So, you know, data around sustainability, data around deforestation, data around um you know, uh, plastic consumption. I mean, there's just so much that we bring in to help us really achieve our goal, which is which is to become a, a truly sustainable business. It's fascinating to see the amount of data assets that we have and then how we combine them together to to drive well, A, to power our growth and B, to, to help us be even more productive. It's clear you're touching so many parts of the organisation and in your profile that people can read on our website, you mentioned about having the goal of creating 
a data culture across Unilever. What does that look like and how are you working towards it? That is a great question. Thanks for picking uh, that up. When you think about data culture, it, it can mean many things to many people. And, the, and everybody listening to this will have their own view of, of what it means for a data culture. For me, data culture is really about how do we have an organization where we are augmenting every decision that's made in the organization uh, with the best data possible and doing this at incredible speed. Um, and those two things are really important. So the best data that we can provide and doing it at speed and how we harness the power of that through every aspect of, of our company's operations and processes. So whether that's on how we innovate new, new brands, whether it's on the speed and the logistics uh, of how we deliver, whether it's on, as I mentioned before, the ingredients, but every single decision we want to be data driven. So when you think about it in that context, um, I think it's actually a very broad business change and transformation question. And you then have to start thinking about the aspects around how we're we thinking about our overall business strategies, Unilever, and how is data and, and how are data and analytics really enabling and empowering that? What are then the right organizational structures we need to have in place you know, in our markets, in our functions, in our divisions that enable us to basically embed the data capabilities, analytics capabilities, and use them in, in their jobs, like use them in the way in which they're thinking about uh, the decisions that they're making on a daily basis. But again, going back to that best data possible and, and at incredible speed. And then it's about talent. So it's about, you know, how do we raise the ceiling of our own teams in some of the core skill sets around data science, you know, data engineering, analytics. So you know, that, that's about saying we want the right people, but it's also about saying, how do we ensure we have the right career paths for those people? How do we make sure we're paying the right amount of money for those people? How can we show real career progression? And whilst that might seem obvious to you sitting outside the organization, it comes like Unilever, we've had to kind of invent some of this stuff. It's, it's been quite new to get into this because it's, it's, a, it's a company that's brilliant at marketing, it's brilliant at finance, it's brilliant at, at sales. What's it like to be brilliant at data? What, what do we need internally and externally and how do we bring everybody up uh, to that level? So part of it's then raising the ceiling of our own kind of skills. And I think there's another couple of aspects that become important there, which are, you know, how do we ensure we've got the right level of diverse uh, and inclusive thinking? So if you think about it, we have about 2 billion people around the world use our products every day. So how do we make sure we've got that level of diversity represented in, in our organization and also in our data and data science teams? And one, one of our big goals there is also about gender diversity. So we've got this really big push for women in data and wanting to get to a 50-50 split between uh, male and female. So, so that's part of it too, which is like the, the culture that we're trying to, to embed. And then not only is it about raising the ceiling, as I said, it's also about raising the floor. So we're doing quite a lot of work at the moment to train the broader organization in the basics of data and analytics. Like last year, we trained about 15,000 people in total across the organization in a, in a course we created called Demystifying Analytics, which has basics of data and data science and how you apply that. But even if you want to learn more, so you want to get even more advanced in this space, we've kind of built new modules where you can actually become an expert if you want to in data science or an expert in, in data engineering. So you kind of, it goes back to that point about kind of trying to change the way the organization is thinking about 
the roles and the talent and the training, which is, you know, moving from kind of a, a more traditional approach to that, to actually these are the new future fit skills. This is what a, a future fit organization needs to be. And this is what Unilever is trying to be. And then the final thing is around the, the tech and the capabilities. So like fundamentally to support that sense of data culture. So augmenting every decision with the best data and doing it at a credible speed, we have to have the right tech. You have to have the right products, the right capabilities in place. And a phrase we use a lot is how do we provide unfettered access to, to data and insights, regardless of where you are throughout the organization. And we're a huge organization. So, you know, there's, there's, a, and there's a lot of diversity in where we are and, and the roles that we have. So there's a really big challenge of how do we make sure we're meeting the needs of each one of our employees and their data and insight needs, really. And one, one final thing I'd say is fundamentally at the basis of this is, is a, a big question that I know others within the field are trying to answer, which is, like, how do you marry uh, the best of machine intelligence and combine that with the best of human intelligence? So, you know, experience, emotional intelligence, creativity. It's, it's that combination of those two things and getting that right that in, is, in essence, the question that we're trying to answer that's going to enable us to create that, that culture. So, so that becomes part of this conversation around the data culture and how we're trying to, you know, establish and embed that in the, in the organization today. As an industry, you know, we are still at such early stages that things like career paths for data practitioners are still having to be created. They, they don't exist. They yeah. haven't been defined. How do we build our, in, in, you know, our employee brand so that people are excited to do, you know, data science and data projects and build a career at Unilever? And of course, we've got some brilliant things. You know, we're so excited about uh, sustainability and improving uh, the impact that we have, um, you know, uh, across the whole world. Um, but how do you also then make sure you've got really exciting and meaningful data projects for people to work on and that they can see that by doing that, they can have an impact uh, on the way the organization works and the success of the organization, but also on the community and, uh, and the ecosystem that we all live in. And so, so it's it's really interesting that part of it because fundamentally, I, I, I agree with you. There's there's still so much room to go uh, from a career perspective, perspective within data, within data science, and what does that future organisation, that future leadership team of an organisation look like in a company like a Unilever? There will be more people with a data science and data background sitting on the boards or sitting on the leadership teams of big companies, and actually, it's kind of up to us to help to shape that so that you know future generations as they come through can see that there is this incredible opportunity to grow your career and, and to develop into, into that for the future. And you mentioned the 2 billion consumers who use your products are around the globe. Um, clearly, the coronavirus pandemic has had a big impact on all of us. And have you seen that manifested in terms of consumer behavior as you see it in the data? And when the pandemic is back under control, do you expect us to see a return to 2019-style behaviours or are some of those shifts permanent? So, so yes, of course, huge shifts in demand, you know, over the last you know, nine to 12 months as, as it is now from when we're talking, particularly in areas of online shopping in the last 12 months. And, and you're actually seeing new demand spaces as people's routines have changed, the way that they wash the way that they think about you know um, beauty and personal care for example one of our big areas has, has all changed there's a huge amount of changes come through and you see that in the data and so 
so I think the question behind your first question is like, you know, what, what has what have we helped to enable and, and not just see, but enable? And and within within the organization of Unilever, for example, we, we played a really significant role in helping to provide that level of almost real-time visibility on consumer changes and behavior changes. And how do you kind of meet those and address those in a far faster time than you've ever done beforehand as an organization? If you if you think of a Lifebuoy, which is I don't know if I want to talk about our brands, but like Lifebuoy is a is a hand sanitizer brand which was previously only in like one or two you know a small number of countries around the world. Suddenly we had to kind of shift that into many countries because people's needs for hand sanitizing you know has gone through the roof. You know scale can be fantastic, it really can, and so the ability to scale things quickly, the ability to you know change up factories to deliver different products and being able to scale and, and deliver things across the world is is fantastic. But it has an impact. It's really powerful. It's like you know that means that more people in more countries can use, you know, um, proper hand sanitizer. It means that in, you, know, you are saving lives without, without wanting to kind of over, you know, over dramatize it. You are helping to save lives across the business and helping our business at the same time. So it, it really is, it really is exciting. And so our, our role in that is kind of how, how you can use data to help understand consumer behavior, how you can then forecast elements of where consumers are going, and how can you do that in such a short space of time that actually people can build businesses around it and build successful businesses around it. Um, but like another data point, which I think is really exciting, is we, we've digitized more than like a million retail stores in, in, in the way we receive data so that we can actually understand consumer behavior uh, in, in small outlets and, and really help us connect uh, more closely in, in that space. So you, you see this big trend towards digitization, e-commerce, multi-channel, and I suppose the last nine to 12 months has just really accelerated that. Do we, can, do we expect to see it continue? I'm reminded of a famous quote by Yogi Bear, which is it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future, um, which, which is entirely true in this space. It's, it's <laughs> really hard to predict what's going to happen in the, next, in the next 12 to 18 months. All the countries are coming out of COVID at different paces and you know, different levels of economic impact from where they are. But you know, there are some things that are obviously very likely and you know, as I, as I just mentioned, the proportion of grocery goods that are now sold online is 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 going through the roof. In the last full year, I think our e-commerce, you know, our sales and e-commerce grew by you know sixty one percent in 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 the last twelve months, and um, now make up just under ten percent of our total business. So so that is that is really significant as a as an as an impact, and I think you know, clearly that some elements of that some elements of that will, will continue. Other areas like there, there are the growing capabilities of, of, of B2B that are, that are coming through where you're, you're working much more directly with uh, digital applications that enable you to sell directly to small stores. That's going kind of going through the roof as well. So you're seeing this kind of this change in consumer behavior, a change in customer behavior. And whilst it's, it's, it's as I said, it's, you know, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. It is clear. It is clear that some of these things will, will remain for us. And I suppose, therefore, what is our role in, in all of this? Our, our role as experts in data in, in any organization, so not just this organization, Unilever, but any organization uh, who, who is listening to this podcast, it's all about how can you make sure we are absolutely ingesting as much of the consumer and, and customer data as possible. But at the moment, I think the most important thing is like what's happening in the next six to eight weeks, what's happening in the next, you know, three to four to five months and understanding how we can help play that role. And what's exciting, I think, for people in our roles, uh, to be honest, is 
we really are front and center. Data is really uh, becoming so valuable for organizations to be able to operate effectively with the visibility that they need. You know, I mentioned I mentioned the example of Lifeboy, but it's the same for every brand, really. And um, and therefore, you have a really clear role to play in the organization to help the organization to see as clearly as possible to enable the business to operate uh, effectively and, and efficiently. And you mentioned about using data to understand uh, the sustainability dimensions to the business um, and supporting uh, things like uh, the use of plastics, for example. Yeah. yeah. What can you tell us about the role that you and your function are playing in supporting those goals within Unilever? We are so passionate about this. It is fundamental to everything that we do. Actually, data analytics is playing more and more of a vital role in it. So, we're, you know, you're talking about carbon reduction, you're talking about plastic reduction, you're talking about deforestation, water scarcity. And so as an example, we're working with uh, a third party, a big provider of, of cloud systems and, and analytics. Um, and, and we're working with them to um, monitor the impact on ecosystems uh, around the world that are connected to the raw materials that we buy. Uh, and so if you can combine you know, the power of cloud computing, uh, the power of satellite imagery and artificial intelligence, you can come up with really exciting views of um, kind of geospatial data intersecting our supply chain. So then you can say, okay, are we sourcing ingredients from areas that are being impacted by deforestation or not and if you can identify them then of course you can say well we don't want to uh, source materials from those areas and we can stop doing that so we can prioritize habitats in that way that help us as as an organization you know deliver against our promise of of not of not getting any of our raw materials from those areas and so it's it's brilliant because you literally are having an impact on on achieving the goals that we're setting ourselves to impact the planet, that is, we are going to stand for reduction in plastics. We're going to stand for, uh, you know, reduction in deforestation and, and reduction in carbon. And we're going to use data analytics to make sure that we can deliver on that promise. Of course, another side of data for good initiatives that I know you're passionate about is data ethics. How yeah. are you setting about tackling that issue? So so uh, data for good, is, as, I, as I tend to talk about it, is... Um, so it's a personal objective for me, and it's also a business uh, objective for Unilever. And uh, when you think about it, trust and transparency, they're becoming increasingly important for companies today. You know, and, and so at Unilever, we believe that addressing the ethics alongside privacy and security is a real game changer for ourselves. So for us, we think about it in two main ways. So firstly, how do we ensure that our employees and also our suppliers and our third parties are only using data? in accordance with data governance and privacy legislation across all of the markets that we operate in. And then secondly, uh, on top of that, can we wanna go kind of one step further, which is we wanna hold ourselves and our partners to the highest standards of the ethics and transparency uh, in, in data too. We're totally committed to how do we use data and analytics in an ethical way. Um, so as an example, uh, we're building an AI assurance platform um, so that we can validate all of our AI models against privacy, fairness, explainability, and robustness, which is one aspect of, of data and ethics, if you think about it. So it's not just about the data, but it's also, you know, when you're putting models on top of that data, are you sure those models 
are running correctly? Are you sure there's no bias in those models? Are you sure they're fair? Can you explain them in a way which means that we understand what we're doing with it? And so when you're applying that to a business process, we feel really confident that then we are using that AI to an ethical standard that might might um, be even greater than, than the, the legislation in that country um, affords us, but means that we feel strongly that, we feel that we're doing things in the right way. Anybody listening to this podcast who is responsible in some way for data or data science or, or some role within their organization, I think we all have a role to play. The, you know, the digital revolution is hitting us so hard. Um, the last 12 months with COVID have shown more and more consumers and, and customers going online and, and digital becoming part of everything that we are doing. We, we are at this point, I think, where our role is, is absolutely twofold. It's, it's the first is how do we make sure that we are using data to really help power the growth in our businesses, ensure the right level of productivity and efficiency. So using data to, to drive our businesses forward to capture the moment of this digitization. That is definitely true. But at the same time, we have a massive role to play around the responsibility of how we use data, use it in a way which is in line with you know, uh, regulations within, within, within countries, of course, but also to the ethical and high standards that we want to hold ourselves to. And, and so we, I think our role is so important because if we get it wrong, then the generations after us won't have a chance. Finally, DataIQ has just completed fresh research in partnership with Royal Mail that explores the trends in data and analytics investment. I discussed the findings with Paul Davison to see just how much COVID-19 has impacted on the data industry. So firstly, Paul, um, let's take a look back at 2020. What were the shifts that you saw in the demand for your data? Well, it was almost, um, you know, two extremes. So we did initially see a significant drop in demand for data quality services, um, particularly anything that was linked to campaign activities. Because as businesses kind of tried to establish what they needed and wanted to do in terms of communication and how best to do it, uh, we obviously saw a lot of activities being put on hold, on pause, and that naturally had an impact um, on our demand for the services that we provide in that data quality arena. We've also got a, a link to mailing specifically, some mailing activity, uh, not exclusively so, but certainly a link there. And naturally, whilst people shifted to um, digital communication, uh, which was happening in the first kind of early stages of lockdown, heavy, heavy reliance on email, uh, we obviously saw that have an impact on demand. But having said that, actually, when we saw things starting to lift, and actually even during some of that lockdown period, we saw some sectors have an opportunity to hit pause. What we saw was that data quality and you know database projects that perhaps were in on the back burner, in the radar in terms of you know coming up, being done soon, started to actually come to the fore. So we actually saw in some instances large projects in terms of data quality projects coming to the fore uh, and, and actually a spike in demand. So we, we kind of saw two things going on. And, and I think the other interesting area is that whilst you've got the whole kind of data quality aspect of our services, there's also the marketing data. And we saw some sectors which were actually booming. And some of them were actually saying, do you know what, we 
we don't need to do any further marketing. We're being overrun with demand. Uh, others that obviously naturally couldn't operate, such as some of the travel sectors, there were some areas there where we saw a drop in that. Towards the back end of it, we saw the world coming back to some level close to what we would expect in, in terms of normal demand. Well, yes, I was wondering what those trends have done to your expectations for 2021 and what that new data normal is going to look like. Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I guess the, the question is still around what does the new normal generally look like? Because undoubtedly that's going to steer what the new data normal will look like. Uh, in terms of 2021, I think it's going to be unsettled for the first part of the year. Uh, but I think with gradually we'll start to see some increased certainty. And that's going to help businesses try to make up some of the losses that they may have experienced last year. Uh, one thing that I've really strongly believe is the importance of data quality. And that's something that I think it's going to increase. And really not just around the understanding and the importance around knowing where your customers are, making sure that that data is accurate and up to date. But actually, I think bigger as we see more movement into uh, automation, uh, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, I think the importance of data quality in those processes, systems, um, and uh, ways of working should not be un underestimated. In the research that we carried out uh, last year and that we're publishing in February, it emerged that it's not just companies that are changing their view of data, but clearly consumers are too. Do you think the marketers have been quick enough to respond and to make their requests for data from consumers sufficiently appealing? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? There was about a quarter that suggested they saw an impact on uh, collection and consent rates. There's clearly some uh, resistance in terms of giving consent. And it's, a, it's an interesting conundrum because I'm a firm believer that being open with data subjects is, you know, absolutely vital, you know, being clear and also provide a, an understandable value exchange. And I think that's where potentially marketeers and some of the businesses haven't been quick enough to respond. If you just take us, us as examples as consumers, you know, we know that we're becoming increasingly aware of the value and importance of our data and our information. And I think it's vital for industry to illustrate the benefits of a data subject or the benefits to a data subject of actually sharing that data. Um, because if they do that, then it can start to show and paint a picture around, you know, as an individual and as a consumer, you're going to receive potentially improved targeting, more relevant services, products, um, and again, ultimately, a better customer experience. I think sometimes the feeling uh, and kind of sentiment around data and what businesses want to do with it is often unnecessarily negative, but it's actually our responsibility, it's industry's responsibility to break that and illustrate and start to demonstrate to consumers how, you know, sharing their data has a value, not just to the business, but also to them as individuals. Well, one thing we did see clearly in the research was that marketers were switching their plans last year with uh, nearly half, 47.1%, increasing the volume of digital advertising. But is there a risk as a result of consumers getting digital overload and as a consequence could those physical channels that, that you mentioned obviously Royal Mail is very involved with re-emerge and, and demonstrate their impact? Without a doubt. Um, marketers are turning increasingly to digital solutions and you know it makes sense but also 
really, most of the media channels are actually becoming more digital themselves. Um, but definitely, there's a real risk of digital overload. Um, and we've definitely actually, as kind of reflection of this, we've seen a powerful re-emergence of mail as an effective medium during the pandemic. And that's often where consumer perceptions of digital have slightly wobbled. And, and we, we carried out, well, Trinity McQueen actually carried out some research on our, our behalf, separate from the report that we did did with yourselves and there's some there's some interesting stats in there um yeah two in five consumers reported actually suffering from digital burnout and again some examples of that is like screen fatigue 38 percent agreed they suffered from digital overload and then on the email side uh, again linked to that screen fatigue uh, nearly half agreed that they'd often just deleted emails without even reading them and then if you look to Joint Industry Committee for Mail, there's some interesting information in there. So we saw that a record 96% of mail was engaged with during the first lockdown in 2020. And actually, the average frequency of interaction um, increased to 4.5. Now, a number on itself doesn't really mean much, but that's actually a 15% increase year on year. And then actually, when you go kind of delving deeper, uh, you get some surprising information around different generations interaction, perception and feelings about mail. The younger generation, the 15 to 24-year-olds, for example, uh, they've actually got the highest level of trust in mail of any age group under the age of 75. So there does tend to be what I think is a positive story around people wanting that kind of physical, touchable nature with the media that they're consuming during times of, well, disconnection and, and uncertainty. You know, there are examples of brands really getting it right. Some of the bigger brands, um, I mean, gen generally, they, they do have a multi-channel approach. But I think it's important to, you know, kind of put strategy ahead of tactics. Um, and that's really important in terms of media selection because, you know, digital will continue to play a role, you know, and a dominant role. But it's about using the right media at the right time for the right audience. So uh, I think we're certainly going to see a resurgence in the physical form of media. But, you know, digital will be here to stay. There's no doubt about that. And it's how you use them in combination that I think is really important. So bringing some of those strands together then, if, if data is getting a little harder to capture, does that mean that data quality should be higher up the, the business agenda in order to, to protect and improve the data assets which have already been won and that marketers have in hand? For me, it's a really simple answer. It's a, an absolute yes. I would say that, of course. Um, but I think what I find frustrating is that data quality isn't actually that difficult to get right. But what is difficult is illustrating to the other areas of the business, like I kind of mentioned before, that it's important. And therefore, have it in mind whenever you're planning anything, whether you're deploying activities, initiatives, because it will have an Im impact on, on data quality. And then also the other side of it is trying to create that confidence in the data quality tools and services that are in the marketplace, um, that, that it's okay to use them, how to use them. And, and really, the combination of those two things are vital to help organizations you know, really just get it right. If you don't get it right, it costs you turnover cost you revenue so um it's you know it's really important to do so it seems that perhaps the impact of poor data quality on marketing performance still hasn't been sufficiently recognized i think that's really really true and really valid and and sometimes i think it's possibly a reflection of a lack of understanding or appreciation um in terms of the importance of it in other areas of the business so you know talking about data and what it can deliver but to non-data people. So it's kind of a bit like storytelling 
with data. But if I can, I'd, I'd like to draw a, a comparison. Um, it's something I was uh, talking to a couple of people about recently. And if you look back at something that previously wasn't recognized in a similar way, actually, is the environmental impact of business. So if you roll roll back time 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't on the, the agenda. It wasn't really something that was considered generally speaking, as a topic of conversation, and, and certainly not really at board level. And look at where we are now. And it's not just a conversation, a topic, and agenda point at board level. There are um, job functions, um, teams that are responsible for managing that situation, making sure it's done right. Um, and, and actually, what I'd really love to see is the same shift being seen in data quality, data policy. Because I think if you do that, the impact is going to be significant. And I think, again, it's the right thing to do. And that's it for another episode of the Data IQ podcast in partnership with Royal Mail. If you liked it, please link, like and share. And until the next time, goodbye.